right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Looking forward to opening God's Word with you. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome, we are glad that you join us. And we'd love to get to know you, help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And so come find me or Aaron or somebody, uh, one of the small group leaders you saw up there. Uh, they're really great people that we'd love to just get to know you, help you get plugged into the community. So... Uh, excited to continue walking our way through the book of Nehemiah this morning, uh, but if you have been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, uh, let me just briefly catch you up on the story with where we're at and we'll, we'll dive right in. So the story of Nehemiah is a, it's a book in the Old Testament, and, and although it's not the very last one uh, in, your, in your Old Testament section of your Bible, the story of Nehemiah really takes place at the very end of the historical account of the Old Testament. It's the last kind of chronological event series of events that we have before uh, we get to the Gospel of Matthew and, and Jesus comes onto the scene. And what you see happening at this part of the story is that God's, he's rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them into the promised land. He's blessed them in countless ways. But instead of choosing to live lives of worship and obedience unto God, God's people uh, choose to live lives of rebellion and disobedience. They choose to reject his good authority in their lives and live as though they are kings. And so in keeping with his promises, God allows the Babylonian empire empire to come and to conquer, uh, conquer the Israelites and to destroy Jerusalem and to allow God's people to be scattered throughout the Babylonian empire, leaving the city of Jerusalem lying in rubble. And, and the reality is, is that that wasn't the end of the story of God's people, though, right? God also promised that if his, while his people were in exile, if they would turn in faith and repentance to him, that he would again uh, re regather them to his place and to the place that he had set for them and to bless them. And, and what you see happening in the book of Ezra, which is kind of the prequel to Nehemiah, is God beginning to start to keep those promises and to bring uh, exiled Israelites back to Jerusalem. But Although some of God's people had returned from exile in Babylon and even begun to rebuild the temple, it's been 140 plus years since Babylon conquered Jerusalem and the walls of the city are still lying in piles of rubble strewn around the countryside. And, and that's where the story of Nehemiah picks up. He gets a report from his brother Hananiah who had probably gone back during one of those previous waves with, with Ezra. And he gets this report about the sad state of Jerusalem and its walls and and although that wouldn't have been new information to Nehemiah, it hits him in a new way. And what happens is it breaks his heart because what's happening is that God's causing Nehemiah to see the state of Jerusalem and the state of its walls like he does. Because, see, Jerusalem is not just any city, it's God's city. It's the place in the Old Testament where he had decided where his name would dwell and where his kingdom and his purposes would be centered. And so the state of its walls being torn down and in rubble and its people being disheveled is it's not really ultimately just the state of a city, but it's proclaiming a message about the God who, who that city represents. And so Nehemiah's heart breaks for that because he loves God's name and he wants God's name to be honored and worshipped and prioritized. And so he realized he has to do something about it. And so after months of praying and planning, he goes to the great Persian king Artaxerxes whom he serves as a cupbearer, and, and he basically asks his king for like a year off of work to uh, go rebuild the walls of his hometown, and on top of that, he asked the king basically to personally endorse and fund those efforts, uh, not to mention the fact that this very king had specifically said just a few years prior that he absolutely did not want Jerusalem to get rebuilt under any circumstances. And what happens is he says yes. Right? It's this incredible miracle that happens. And, and Nehemiah, the reality of that miracle is not lost on him. He gives God all the credit for that. Right? He, he talks about how the reason why the king grants his request is because God's gracious hand is on him. And, and I point that out because that's this 
major part of the major theme in the book of Nehemiah, right? It's easy to think that uh, the book is really about this, uh, or really about Nehemiah, and it's about kind of the great example of godly leadership he displays. And, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot that we can learn from Nehemiah about leadership and all those kinds of things, but it's not really the point of the book. It's not really about him. It's a book that's actually like every other book, it's really about God. And, and specifically, what we see in Nehemiah is that it's a book about how God's faithful to keep his promises. We see him doing that in and through Nehemiah. And so God's using Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of his promises to forgive and to renew and to to restore his people. And, And so armed with the clear support of the king, as well as more importantly of God himself, Nehemiah sets off to Jerusalem and when he gets there, he kind of pitches this vision to God's people about uh, his, the calling God's put on his heart to rebuild the walls and to rebuild not just the walls of a city, to, but to rebuild a community who, of people who will live for the glory of God in that city. And in response, we see all the people are in. They're all in. And we saw last year, or not last year, but last week as we read chapter 3, right? we saw this list of incredible baby names for you, if you're looking for some, of uh, all the different people who are excited about being a part of God's work and the various roles that they played. And we saw there was religious professionals and building professionals and leaders and rulers and regular guys and men and women and sons and daughters and even some goldsmiths, goldsmiths and perfumers that were all in on the project of rebuilding the walls. And so... This is the other major theme you see in the book of Nehemiah is that it's not just a story about God's faithfulness, it's a story about the people of God who are responding in hope and trust in the faithfulness of God. And what they're doing is they're saying yes as a people to being a part of God's kingdom building work together and they're all in on that. And so, well, this morning we're going to pick up the book in chapter 4 and what we're going to see this morning is that even though God is clearly behind this rebuilding project of the walls of Jerusalem and even though God's people are deeply unified and very committed to the work together, what we're going to see is that God's kingdom building work is rarely easy and is never without opposition what I want to show you this morning is as we take a look at how God's people faced opposition in building his kingdom in their days, it's not just the reality that you and I can, fa- can expect to face opposition as we seek to be a part of God's kingdom building work in our own day, but that like Nehemiah did, the way that you overcome opposition and persevere in God's kingdom building work is by continually refocusing our attention on him and preparing ourselves and arming ourselves, not with the weapons of men, but with the weapons of God. And so I can't wait to show you that this morning. So with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into Nehemiah chapter 4. Jesus, thank you for our time together this morning. We're so glad to get to study your word and, and as we do to know you in it. And so God, we just ask by your spirit's power that you would be speaking to us this morning through your word, that this story many thousands of years old would be fresh and good news to our hearts as we see a people who give their lives for your kingdom building purposes, uh, not because it's easy, but in the face of opposition, God, trusting that you're the one who's going to see them through. And so help us uh, to see us as God's people today in the midst of this story and help us to trust you as we read. We pray these things in your good name, God. Amen. All right, well, Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. begins this way. So when Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became very angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? 
Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was on his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox could jump on that and would break down their walls of stone. Hear us, O God, for we are despised, and turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity, and do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall. All of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. But when Sambalot and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. But the Jews who lived near them came and told, ten, told us ten times over, wherever they turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and spears and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. When our enemies had heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, then we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. And from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor. And the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall and those who carried building materials with their work with, uh, with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and, we're wi and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. For wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, and our God will fight for us. So we continued to work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. And neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. All right, so a little bit of a little bit of a change in tone in our story here this morning, right? God's people have started the work on rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And what you find is that from the very beginning, they start to face opposition that, that really only seems to increase over time as the wall gets higher and higher. And as we read the passage, what becomes clear as we're going to study this morning is that, that the opposition God's people are facing, it, it doesn't all look the same, and it actually doesn't even all come from the same direction. It comes in a few, from a few different directions and takes various forms. And the first direction that we see opposition coming from is, is just external, Right? The passage begins with Nehemiah's arch nemeses, right? Sambalot, Tobiah, they're, they're hearing God's people had took Nehemiah's crazy idea to rebuild this wall, a wall that stood uh, destroyed for 140 plus years. They hear that he, people are actually taking his idea seriously and they're like, wow. And, and what happens is, is 
what happens is they, they are not psyched about that prospect. They're, they're not on team rebuild the wall, right? They, they are, in fact, on the exact opposite team, right? In verse 1, he says they become angry. They are greatly incensed. Church, one of the, one of the, anger is one of the best revealers of what's going on in someone's heart. Not just someone else's in your own as well. I remember pastor one time saying that anger is always our response to whatever endangers something that we love. Anger is our response to whatever endangers something that we love. And the Bible is not opposed to all kinds of anger. We see Jesus get angry, right? The reality is that uh, almost all the time, our anger reveals that it's not God that we love the most, and his priorities, it's something else, right? And that certainly is true here for Sambalot and Tobiah, right? They're governors of the regions surrounding Jerusalem. We saw in chapter 2 when they hear that Nehemiah is coming to, uh, to help, right? It says that they were very much disturbed, that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites, right? You see, they would have realized that, that a restored Jerusalem, that that was going to be a challenge to their power and their influence and, and their priorities in the region, right? They liked being in charge. They liked not having anyone standing up for God or his people. And the higher the walls get, the more they feel that power slipping out of their hands, and so their anger bubbles over into this first form of ex, the first form that we see their external opposition taken. It's it's mockery and ridicule, right? Verse two, they say, "What are these feeble Jews doing? Right? Are they going to restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in the day? Right? Can they bring these stones back to life?" Tobiah chimes in. Even a fox could jump on there. He'd knock over their little wall, right? You're like, "Wow, that is such a that is a hilarious joke, buddy!" Right? You just like keep your day job, whatever you're doing, right? And they're what they're saying functionally is, who do these people think they are, right? A bunch of pastors, perfumers, right? You guys don't know how to build a wall. What do you think you're going to you're gonna, you're gonna pray the wall up, right? Is that your plan? You're going to offer sacrifices and hope it magically kind of rises up out of the ground? See, their hope was that mockery and ridicule would cause Nehemiah and the people of God and people of Jerusalem to be so discouraged and filled with self-doubt that they just kind of give up. And the reality is, is that mockery and ridicule works sometimes, doesn't it? Right? It really does, right? It causes us to doubt ourselves or to doubt our abilities or it causes us to doubt God or what or, what, or if he's really called us to do the work he's called us to, right? But Nehemiah and the people, they had already seen God's clear calling. They had already been convinced of his faithfulness to this effort. And so the bad jokes of some regional officials, right, are not really going to dissuade them from continuing on with the work. And we see that they do. We read in verse 6 how they rebuilt the wall till half of its height, right? Passage goes on, right? And Sambalot and Tobiah, they realize that their opposition needs, uh, they realize that, that their mockery, that that's not dissuaded the people of God, right? They realize that it's time for their opposition to kind of get ratcheted up a few notches, right? And when they go from mockery and ridicule to straight up threats of violence against God's people, verse 8, we read how they plotted together along with the people of Ashdod to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. Now, the reality is, is that we're just not really sure if these threats that they were making were just kind of like a big bluff, right? They, they would have gotten Nehemiah's letters from King Artaxerxes that said that King Artaxerxes was behind this project, and uh, I would imagine they would not be that stoked about going up against the entire Persian Empire, right? That doesn't really go well in this time for people, right? But what we do know is that God's people took those threats seriously. 
And what we do know is that what happens is that as the people are building the walls of Jerusalem, they could have looked out on every direction and seen enemies surrounding the city and the people of God, right? Sambalot, the Horonite, he governed Samaria to the north of Jerusalem. And Tobiah, the Ammonite, governed Ammon to the east of Jerusalem. Geshem, the Arab, governed the area to the south. And the people of Ashdod, we covered the area to the west. And so God's people are building this wall and they are surrounded on every side by those who would seek to oppose God's kingdom rebuilding efforts. And so there's this external opposition surrounding them on all sides, but that's not the only direction we see opposition coming from, right? It's not just external. We read on in verses 10 through 12, we see that there's, there's internal opposition to God's kingdom building efforts going on, right? We read verse 11 and 12, how Sambalot and Tobiah, they're plotting their threads. They were creating a lot of fear in the people of God. Right, they come to Nehemiah in verse 11, right? We, basically, they're saying, we've heard rumors that our enemies are going to sneak up and attack us and kill us when we're not looking. And in verse 12, we read that the, the families of the people who are coming from the surrounding areas around Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls, right? They're coming to Nehemiah, and they're coming to their husbands and sons, and they're saying, these, these people, these enemies, they're going to attack you. You need to stop. Come back to our city. Come back to where it's safe. Come back to where you can protect us. On top of all that, we read in verse 10 where the builders, they come to Nehemiah and they say, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble. We cannot rebuild the wall. So these people, they're, they're literally halfway done. They're halfway done. And they're thinking, wow, who are we kidding, right? We can't do this, right? They're looking at the glass half empty, not half full, right? They're discouraged, they're afraid, the wall is too big, there's too much rubble, our enemies are surrounding us on all sides. So there's, there's external opposition to God's kingdom building work in the form of mockery and ridicule and threats of violence, and there's internal opposition to God's kingdom building work in the form of fear and discouragement and self-doubt and exhaustion. But the passage this morning is not just full of opposition to God's kingdom building work, is it? No, we see Nehemiah leading God's people to respond to opposition and, and to, to respond to that opposition, not with fear, but with faithful perseverance. And what you see in the passage is that Nehemiah's response, it all starts with prayer, right? When Sambalot and Tobiah start making fun of the project and insulting their efforts, trying to discourage God's people, get them to doubt themselves, Nehemiah's first instinct here, and I'll add, throughout the whole book, his first instinct is always to turn to God, right? His first instinct is to entrust this opposition he sees to God, right? He doesn't respond by speaking to Sambalot and Tobiah, right? He doesn't go back to them and be like, well, for all these reasons, right, the project is not really that. It's not really a problem, and God's not really on our side, and here's all the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. He doesn't go talk to them, right? Instead, what he does is he talks with God about them, Right? Let me just add this. How, how much better do you think things would start going, right? If we didn't feel the need to address every form of criticism we ever got, right? If you didn't feel the need that you had to go right whatever wrongs were out there, but that we entrusted God to be the one to do that, right? Verse four and five, Nehemiah prays this brutally honest prayer, right? He, it resembles the imprecatory prayers that we see in, in, in the Psalms and in Jeremiah. And he prays here, right? He says, he's asked God, he says, turn their insults back on their own heads, 
and give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. And don't cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. And, and you read that and you're thinking, Nehemiah, bro, that does not sound very Christian of you, right? Like, that doesn't really sound very Jesus-y, right? And the reality is you'd be right. It doesn't, right? <laughs> right? Romans chapter 12, verse 14, we get a very different kind of instruction, right? Paul instructs us to bless, not to curse those who persecute us. Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 5, he tells us to love your enemies and to pray for those who, who persecute you. Right? I think the reality of, of Nehemiah's kind of off-axis uh, off prayer here it just like serves as a great reminder for us that he's not the real hero of the story. Right? He, he's not this perfect leader to be blindly followed and imitated, right? He's just a guy who's flawed, right? And his flaws, they leave us longing for a better leader to follow, don't they? Right? One that we don't have to second guess, one whose heart we know fully aligns with God and his purposes. Leaves us longing for a better leader, right? So while there is definitely something that Nehemiah gets wrong in his prayer here, I think there's also a few things he gets right. Most importantly, I think what you see in his prayer is that, uh, is that he's not asking for personal vengeance or vindication, right? Instead, he's asking that God would be the one who vindicates his people. You know, so often I think we, need, we feel this felt need to vindicate ourselves, right, to others, to prove ourselves to be right, right, in the midst of various situations. And yet, what Nehemiah, even his flaws, shows us is that, is that we can trust God to be the one who will vindicate his people in the end. And the reality is, is that when you entrust that kind of vindication over to God, what it frees you up to do is get back to the work he's called you to, right? And to keep pressing into what he's called you to, right? And so, Nehemiah's first response to opposition is to pray. And we see him doing that throughout the book and throughout the passage. And before we move on, I just want to take a moment just to be clear about this. Nehemiah's prayer is not just about trusting God to deal with the opposition to his kingdom-building work. It's really about reminding himself of the God whose kingdom he's building in the first place, isn't it? See, in the, I think in the face of opposition, prayer is so important because what it does is it helps us to shift our attention away from the opposition we're facing and our inability to overcome it or address it, and instead to shift our attention back onto God, right, who is actually able to deal with that and actually able to do something about it. I'm, I was reading this passage this week, and I was reminded about uh, Acts chapter 4, and in Acts 4, there's this picture of the early church, and uh, Peter and, and, uh, and John, I believe, have been preaching the gospel and proclaiming Jesus as salvation, and they've been calling the people of Jerusalem to put their hope and their faith in Jesus, and, and they're, they're, they're arrested and beaten, and, and when they get out of prison, they go back and they've got people gathered together, right, in response to all this opposition they're facing, they spend time praying together, and the prayer that you read of God's people who are facing opposition in Acts 4, it's, it's really altogether pretty surprising, Right? They spend the vast majority of their time praying, reminding themselves about who God is and all that he's done in the past and how in spite of all of these people who are conspiring against God's purposes and his plans, uh, how God's really in control and how they can trust him and they are quoting the Old Testament and they're reminding themselves of God's faithfulness in the past. And, and at the end, what happens, you see, is that they don't even ask for the opposition to get removed in the end. Instead, what they do is they pray that God would empower them to endure it. You see, prayer is not just about asking God to remove opposition. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't, right? 
But what God always will do is empower his people to endure in the midst of opposition, right? And so Nehemiah prays, not once, twice in our passage alone, in like 10 of the 13 chapters, we see Nehemiah praying, right? In verse 14, he calls the people to remember the great and awesome God they serve, right? To take their eyes off of the rubble and off of their enemies and to again set their focus and their attention on God. And to allow a focus and a perspective shift that has him front and center, that has him big and large in the viewfinder, to be the thing that empowers their confidence and fuels their continued kingdom-building efforts unto him. Not, not because there is no opposition, but in spite of opposition, right? And so we see Nehemiah praying, right? But Nehemiah doesn't just pray and, and refocus his attention on God and the people's attention on God. He takes action as well, and he prepares the people for the possibility of attack, right? Verse 9, he says, we prayed and we set a guard, right? Verse 14, he says, he tells the people to remember the Lord is great and awesome and to fight for their families if the time comes. Verse 20, he says, our God will fight for us. Then he goes on in verse 21 to say, and so we continue to work, half the men holding spears and bows and armor and shields, right? I think Nehemiah's actions here can feel like a little bit contradictory to us, right? right we tend to think, well, if you really believe that God was going to protect you, then uh, why are you posting a guard, right? right? Maybe, maybe you post, if you post a guard, then what it says is you really don't believe that God's going to protect you, right? We, we kind of tend to think like, if God's in charge, right, it really shouldn't matter what I do. And if it matters what I do, then God's not, he must not really be in charge. But the truth is, is that we, th that we see throughout Scripture is that, is that the Bible holds in this perfect tension both God's sovereignty, his, his authority, his control, as well as human responsibility. You see, it's, it's not an either or, it's a both and. The Bible is clear that God is in control and what we do matters. And I'll just shoot straight with you. On an intellectual level, that, that is, that's hard to really like grasp. It's one of those things where you're like, I don't totally get exactly how that all works. If I'm honest, I don't totally get exactly how that all works, right? But let me just say this. On a, on a very practical level, that, that tension is actually really, that's actually really good news, right? Because what it means is that what you and I do, it actually matters, and yet we cannot completely screw things up to the point where we're throwing out God's plans, Right? Our lives and our actions and the work we do to build God's kingdom, it really does matter. It's not meaningless. It's not irrelevant. It's not, well, whatever, keep yourself busy while God's at work doing his own thing, right? It's important for us to plan and prepare and to think carefully and to act wisely as we seek to join God in his kingdom-building efforts. And yet, at the same time, the reality of God's, this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility and those things being held in tension is that, is at the same time, we can trust that God's the one who's ultimately in control and he's the one ultimately building his kingdom and so while he does use us he's not depending on us what happens is is that when you allow that tension to sit as the bible allows it to sit right it allows you to pray first and to plan second right knowing that god uses both of those things to bring about his good purposes and you can trust him in the midst of both of them to do it right 
And so we see in the passage, right, we see opposition to God's kingdom-building work, and we see Nehemiah's response to that opposition in prayer and in preparing the people for attack. And finally, we see the results, right? Verse 15, right, he says two things, right? The enemies found out that God had frustrated their plans. And the second thing, right, we all return to the wall, each to our own work, right? They even dial up the energy, right? Verse 21, it says that they started working from first light until the stars come out, right? They are doubling their efforts, right? Instead of giving up and stopping the work, what we see is that they're pressing into the work God's called them to, trusting that the same great and awesome God who called them to it is going to be the one who empowers them and the one who sustains them in the midst of it. And so I think the question is, as we kind of look at this piece of the story for Nehemiah, the question I think is just, what's kind of the takeaway for us here today, right? River City Church, Dubuque, Iowa, 2021. What, is, what does this story really have for us there? And we're not the Israelites, right? We're not, we're not really trying to rebuild the wall, right? We're not surrounded by enemies on all sides. Like, what, what, what's really here for us? I think the reality is, is that while we aren't the Israelites, the New Testament's clear that the church is God's people, right? And while we're not called to build a wall, right, God's people have indeed been commissioned by Jesus to be a part of his kingdom-building work, which looks in our day and age like being a part of the work of making disciples, right? And so the reality is, is I think that as we look at this passage, it's just this really healthy reminder for us that, that whenever God's people are committed to God's kingdom-building work, that they shouldn't be surprised when they face opposition. And we shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition. 2 Timothy 3.2 says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself tells us that the world hated him. If it hated him, it, it will also hate us as well. I think it's just important to understand that because I think sometimes we can kind of get this false impression that if we just kind of did ministry with the right tone and posture, that like as long as we did it the right way, that like in the end the world would just like be up, be up for it, right? That they'd be cheering it like, okay, well this is really good, right? And the reality is, is that that's not the case. There are some people who will stand in opposition to God and his kingdom, no matter what you do or how you do it, right? Sambalot's anger, that was not going to be dissipated by Nehemiah having a meeting with him and just being like, bro, hey, like, we're not going to attack you, man. We're just like building the city. We're doing our thing, right? That would not have affected that situation at all. And I just want to be clear, that's not an excuse to like just be a jerk for Jesus or something like that. That's not how that works, Right? But it is to say that opposition to God's kingdom-building work doesn't inherently mean that you're doing it wrong, right? And we want to have an attitude of, of humility where we keep asking God to correct our hearts because we want to model the way that doing ministry the way that Jesus did with an attitude of humility rather than a pride or rather than of self-sufficiency, right? But it doesn't mean that we're always doing it wrong. And so while we should never be surprised when we face opposition, the reality is, I think if we're honest, uh, the kind of opposition we're facing here at River City 2021, Dubuque, Iowa, let's just shoot straight. It's not really coming primarily in the form of external opposition, is it, right? Like, I don't think any of us would uh, say, unless you're being wildly overdramatic, that you're being persecuted for your faith here in Dubuque, right? Like, I just think the reality is that that's, that's not really the way it is, right? And that's not to say that there aren't places around the world or even areas in our own country where God's people are indeed facing that kind of external opposition, whether it's mockery and ridicule or even threats of violence, right? There certainly absolutely are. 
But I just want to encourage you, church. The truth is, is that there may well come a day when, like Christians around the world, even us here in Dubuque might be facing external forms of opposition to God's kingdom-building work, right? And if or when that does happen, I just want to say two things to you now on the front end, right? Number one, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid, right? In the end, God wins, right? He's the one who's building his church, and the gates of hell don't overcome it. In the end, Jesus is sitting on a throne and people from every nation and every tongue and every tribe are sitting around his throne in heaven, worshiping and praising him. He wins in the end. And so you don't need to be afraid in the middle, right? But second, and I wanna be clear about this, opposition to God's kingdom building work doesn't mean that God is losing doesn't mean he's losing the battle now, right? Look around the world. The places where the opposition towards God's kingdom-building work is, more, is most fierce, yeah, that's where God's kingdom is advancing in the most virulent kinds of ways, right? Look at church history. What you see throughout church history is that when God's people are opposed and when there is opposition to his kingdom-building work, the church is not crushed, it thrives, Opposition is not always a setback or a step back in God's plan. Often, in fact, it is actually central to the work he's trying to accomplish in and through his people. And so I want to encourage you, you don't, don't be afraid. God's the one who is in control. Now, later, today, tomorrow, every day in between, he's the one who's in control. And so we don't need to be afraid. Church, fear is contagious, Right? Fear is contagious. And when one of us starts giving in to fear, right, what happens is you start leading other people to do that. And I want to be, I just want to challenge you, church, to, to pay attention to your words. To pay attention to the stuff that you let into your heart and let into your mind, right? Are the words that you are speaking, are the words that you are hearing, are they leading you to have a greater confidence and faith in God? Or are they leading you and others to be consumed by fear? Be careful about what you are consuming, but also be careful about what you say to others. Right, God calls his people over and over and over not to have a mindset of fear, but to have one of faith and hope and trust in him. And it is well-founded. He is the great and awesome God of the universe. There is no one and nothing that can stand in his way. And so we have great hope in him. And so I want to encourage you, be careful about that, right? And so while we may not be facing external opposition, I think the reality is, is that we'd be pretty naive to think that we aren't facing any kind of opposition right, to God's kingdom building work. And the reality for us is I think that it primarily is taking the form of internal opposition, right? Like God's people in this passage, we too can get tired and weary. It can be easy to get discouraged as we seek to build God's kingdom. We can look at the people and the relationships that God's calling us into in our families or in our workplaces or in our communities or wherever it might be. And we can look around and we can think, wow, the, there is too much rubble here. We can't do this. What were we thinking? Can we really bring these burnt stones to life? 
Or we can be called by our families and friends to step back into a place of perceived safety and security when God's calling us out into a missional risk-taking with him and for him. Now, I don't know about you, but this passage is actually really encouraging to me. I'm just really grateful the Bible doesn't just gloss over this story here. It doesn't really just, doesn't just present God's people as like these like heroic people who never doubted, right? Who are just like, ah, well, enemies, whatever, right? We don't really care. We're just continuing on, right? No, you get a real picture of what's going on here, Right? Right? And it's encouraging to me, right? Because instead of seeing that there are these heroic people of faith that never doubt and never worry, you get us this real picture that, that they can be a people who can praise God and get excited about his work in and through them one day and be tired and exhausted and full of discouragement and fear the day after that, right? They can be full of self-doubt. It's reality, that's how it goes, doesn't it? Anyone who's ever taken on, said yes to God's kingdom building work knows that you can be excited about it one day and you will face opposition the next. That's how it is. And there is discouragement and there you do get tired doing it, right? That's why Paul writes in the New Testament, he says, don't get tired or weary of doing good, right? If none of us were tempted to get tired and weary of doing good, he wouldn't have to remind us to do it, right? And yet we see in this passage, we see God's people choosing to press into the work that God's called them to, right? I just want to be clear. Not because they reevaluated the rubble and we're like, oh, no, no, it's actually not as bad as we thought it was, right? Like, it, we're already halfway. It's fine, right? And, and it wasn't as well because they looked, took a long, hard, deep look inside themselves, right? And kind of found their bootstraps, wherever those things were, pulled them up really hard, right? We're like, oh, yeah. We, we can do it. Yeah, what were we thinking? That was crazy. Of course we can, right? We got this. No. What happens is they choose to look up at God, don't they? To remember that it's a, the great and awesome God who not only called them to the work of rebuilding his kingdom, but the one who indeed will fight for them. Church, the reality is we need to do the same. To refocus our attention on God and not the rubble. The reality is that no, you cannot change people. And no, you cannot bring burnt stones back to life. But you never could, right? That's not a new development in the story. That's how it's always been, right? And God's, God was never relying on us to change people's hearts and lives. He uses us for those purposes, but he wasn't depending on you to do it. He's the one who is doing it. And that reality should fill us with, with a bold confidence and a deep dependence that leads us to be a people who pray a lot, who pray a lot, because we don't have any power to change anything. But God does. And he invites us into his work. Church, I'm afraid in my own heart the reality is, is that I view prayer as at least a secondary resort rather than a first weapon of strength. Right? Because that's what it really is. And Nehemiah sees it that way. And he prays all the time. And so there's an invitation for us to be a people of prayer. But but I want to be clear, not, not a people who pray for vengeance against the opposition that we face like Nehemiah did, but instead a prayer like we see Jesus praying, who's on the cross being mocked and ridiculed, being humiliated, and yet 1 Peter 2 tells us, did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, and he bore our sins 
in his body on the cross so that you and I might die to sin and to live for righteousness. See, it's by his wounds we have been healed. Here's the deal, church. If you're going to start praying that God will withhold forgiveness from people who oppose him, you just need to shoot straight with you. You're, you're praying against yourself. Right? Because you indeed are someone who stands in opposition to God's kingdom building work uh, more often than you'd like to admit. But instead, we have the great King Jesus who does not withhold forgiveness from us, but gives himself so that we might be forgiven by him. Church, we have a, a weapon and a power that Nehemiah never had in the gospel. And we have a, a power and a strength in and through the personal work in Jesus that Nehemiah didn't have access to yet. So that leads us to be a people who, who don't pray, Father, judge them, but like Jesus does, his Father, forgive them. So we have the resources to forgive and to love our enemies that Nehemiah didn't have, but we don't just pray. We also need to prepare ourselves for battle. And I just want to be clear. Arming ourselves with God's weapons, right? Not like the Second Amendment, right? Like Nehemiah chapter 2 is not like Second Amendment, like pro-action passage, right? Like you can have your own opinions about that. It's irrelevant, right? But that's not what this one's about. You see, what we see in the New Testament is, is Paul's words in Ephesians 6, right? He says, finally, right? Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. See, the weapons that we have as God's people, if you look at the armor of God, they are almost all defensive ones. And you look at Jesus' call for us to be salt and light, right? It's a call to be a preservative in the midst of the world. Jesus came and defeated the enemies of Satan and sin and death, not by wielding a sword and a spear, but by getting pierced by one. It's his blood and his power shed on our behalf. That's where our hope for defense against opposition lies. His finished work so let's run to him and the armor he provides rather than the armor we want to get for ourselves. See, and it's remembering and celebrating Jesus' finished work on our behalf. That's what we're celebrating every week when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves of his work completed for us, his body and blood broken and shed for us, defeating the enemies of Satan and sin and death. And so communion, it's a chance for us to remember all that Jesus has done for us and where our hope and security really lies. Pierce Peter says that it's kept in heaven by him. So communion is a way we remember that. It's not something that changes our status or our standing with God, but it's a way we choose to refocus our attention on him. The one who has already secured a victory for us. The one who we can hope and trust in. And so as we sing, as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, put your hope in him. Remember him. Set your faith back on him so that in the midst of whatever opposition you're facing, you might have a hope that comes from a security that can't shift and change, but one that stands complete in heaven on your behalf. So take communion. Go back. There's a table on the left and on the right. You can grab the elements there. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian yet, you're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, I just want you to know how welcome you are here. I just want you to know that like uh, me, this church, we don't see you as opposition, right? 
And we want to be a part of whatever God's doing in your heart and life and invite you into this community to see that he really is the great and awesome God who can be trusted and hoped in and surrendered to. And so, as we sing, as we remember the gospel together in song, let's talk about that stuff with him. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for our time in your word. God, we just humbly ask that you would cause whatever is true and right and good from whatever I've said this morning to sink deeply in and anything else to get blown away. God, what we want to be is a people who are not consumed by fear or worry or doubt in the face of opposition, but those whose hope and confidence rests in you knowing that you indeed are the great and awesome God who has promised to fight for us, who has already fought and won the battle on our behalf. And so our confidence can be in you with great hope and joy. Cause us to be a people who persevere in the work you're calling us into in the mission of making disciples. God, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in you. Amen.